Welcome back to Compassion Revolution podcast, my friends. In this series, we're going to prepare you for the Compassion Revolution conference on the 24th and 25th of October. You can grab your ticket at CompassionRevolution.care. Our theme in 2023 is Making Work Beautiful. Join me and some of our extraordinary speakers. Hello and welcome back to Compassion Revolution podcast, my friends. I'm being joined today by Bridget Russell and Kate Bowles. So let me tell you a little bit about these amazing women. Bridget Russell is a coach and facilitator. And she works alongside people in the public and third sectors across Scotland. So she's coming to us on this Zoom from sunny Scotland, and she believes in a relational approach to coaching and development. And I first heard about Bridget because over the last three years, she's been collaborating with Charlie Jones in convening these weekly coming together called Spaces for Listening, and that's a hashtag, Spaces for Listening, if you want to find them on Twitter. And they hold these over Zoom. And I got introduced to her more formally by the dear friend of the revolution, the beloved friend of our revolution, Kate Bowles. Kate is a narrative researcher and a patient advocate at Illawarra Shoalhaven, local health district in New South Wales. Hello to all my friends at that LHD. And Kate also works at the University of Wollongong. They teach narrative ways of navigating uncertain futures of work. And Kate also writes online and you can find her writing and this will, this will mean she'll have to get cracking and do more. You can find her writing at musicfordeckchairs.com. Okay, hello, Kate and Bridget. I'm so excited. I'm always excited because I was thinking, you know, Kate, you have been a part of the Compassion Revolution family since even before we had our very first conference in 2019. We're about to have our fifth. So I do think of you as a beloved member of our family. And um, you're just such an incredible part of it. And every year we have this conversation about, Kate says, you know, what do you want me to talk about this year? <laughs> so welcome, Kate. Oh, thanks, Mary. Yeah. And Bridget, good to have you as a new addition to our Compassion Revolution family. And I'm so glad that you're going to come out from Scotland and spend some time with us at the conference. Thank you so much for the invitation. I'm really excited. So I've got to ask, I've got to ask because, you know, we have people from other places speaking on the podcast because we're meeting all the speakers and I love to hear what the weather's like. So what's ha happening there in Scotland? Is it, is it dark and cloudy? It, it, is it sunny? It is, it is dry and that's very significant because it's been raining a lot, but it's dry and trying to be sunny today. Super, so. you can get your washing on the line. <laughs> <laughs> All those important things. You know, I, where to start? Okay. I've been thinking, you know, a lot about the work that you do. And maybe I want to start, Kate, by asking you, because we really do have a conversation every year where you're going to speak or you're going to facilitate conversation or, you know, something important. And we literally do have a conversation. We'll be walking along or talking on Zoom and you all say, what, I wonder 
what you what should I speak about this year? I'll say, what do you want to talk about this year? <laughs> How did we get to have the, this amazing idea around creating uh, spaces at work where we can really connect and listen to to each other as a part of this conference. Do you remember the how we got there? I do. Oh, um, good. That look, Mary. The background was that uh, we're doing some really beautiful work in the Illawarra Shoalhaven Local Health District, looking at how when patients and clinicians meet each other, it's very often in a situation in which there's quite a lot at stake for the patient. They've walked in with a whole rich life behind them. And what they really want is to be heard, but they're also desperately trying to listen because they're being told a lot of new and quite frightening information. And at that moment, they run into someone, and in fact, a sequence of someone's, all of whom are very busy. They're right in the middle of their working day and they've got information to share, but in a funny way, they also want to be heard. So we've been looking at the question of listening And we had discovered Bridget's work through uh, Spaces for Listening. And Bridget has really generously brought our whole team in one by one to participate in Spaces for Listening. And I realized that we don't talk enough about listening in the workplace. So when you said, what should we be talking about? It was top of mind for me that we should be talking about listening, not just doing. Really, really interesting, isn't it? And there's a there's a type of listening. I want us to talk about that in a minute. But Bridget, I'd love to hear, because your work is really centered around this idea of listening now. So what, what's the, you tell me the, what, what the, this quality of listening and why it is important and also attractive. Well, where Spaces for Listening came from kind of connects to all of that, Mary, and it was right back at the beginning of 2020, Charlie Jones and I we connected on Twitter and we used to talk a lot then about how we both noticed in our respective work. So he's a psychologist and I'm a coach. We were both noticing that nobody seemed to have enough space or enough space for listening. And that was already there. And then the pandemic. And and that seemed to really ramp that up even more. Right, you know, so I'm talking back sort of April, May 2020. And so that we thought we would experiment with it. That's where that where space listening came from. But here we are three and a half years later and people still need more space for listening. So coming back to your question about what to, what kind of listening, I think we all know how to listen. Um, so this isn't about sending people on training courses to learn skills for listening. I mean, there are some things that we can all do better. But it's actually not about tips and tricks and uh, because actually it's about the, that quality. It's about being alongside each other in a space. And I guess that's what Spaces for Listening creates is a space between us in which we can genuinely pause and just listen to each other. We are working at such breakneck pace and everywhere I go throughout you know, health and different social care systems, people talk about the exhaustion. They're tired of being exhausted. They talk about the speed at which they work. Things get reduced to units of time. And there's a whole conversation we could have about time. But how do we introduce this idea, and you'll you'll both have interesting things to say here, 
But how do how do you go about introducing this idea of listening when in the back of my head I hear people in leadership positions saying there's so much to be done and people going home at the end of the day and I hear this often from nurses that I work so hard all day and I get home and I don't have the satisfaction of feeling that I really did the thing that I wanted to do today. I don't have that sense of satisfaction that I met patients where they were, not that I didn't want to, but I just wasn't able to do it. How do you respond to that? They're going to have to flip a coin. Kate, go first. Look, I think the first thing to say there is that we have to respect the very difficult circumstances people are working under at the moment. And I think you're right, Mary, to focus on how do we in a practical way make this possible rather than assuming that people who seem not to be listening to patients, for example, rather than assuming that they don't want to listen, but but instead looking at the structural and the system problems that mean they're not given time to listen. So this is why I think in Bridget and Charlie's work, what's so important for me is not just the listening, but the space to really assert that people need to be given this space. And that means in very stressed organisations, it means recognising that listening is a form of action that leads to very good outcomes. Ah, so I think mm. that's what I hold on to there. That's really interesting. What, Bridget, what do you want to add to that? Um, well, to, to build on that, Ali and I have, have talked about a lot is the conditions that, that lead to people feeling listened to and able to listen to each other. So that issue of time and pressure and pace is is very familiar to, to me as well from what you said. And with spaces for listening, it's not that much time. It's 50 minutes in total. Right? Time after time, pe- what people say is they can't believe how much they feel able to say in two minutes because each person has two minutes of uninterrupted time times three to speak. They can't believe how much they can say in two minutes. And uh, the seven other people say, I can't believe how much I've been able to listen without being distracted but also how much you get to know about seven other people. So our our reflections are that it's then it's about the quality of the listening, but it's also the conditions that we create between us. And we talk a lot about there's some core principles that, that underpin this. One is around equality. So there is an equality of listening space in, in spaces for listening, which perhaps doesn't happen elsewhere in or not in, you know, it doesn't happen in a lot of places in our workplaces, but also across society, but also that we choose to be there. So we're choosing to be there alongside each other, paying attention, listening. Um, so yes, yeah, so it's something about the conditions that we create with each other. I was thinking as you were speaking about the way we even talk about time. So, mm. you know, we people use phrases like, I'm smashing it. When they talk about work, they're like, I'm smashing the work, I'm killing it. I'll shoot it over to you. <laughs> yeah. You know, they use, we used to talk about work as like labour of love, you know, and now it's we're killing it, you know. We're really getting it done, you know, we're kicking it. And this idea that time is a bully, that somehow we have to wrangle it in order that we can bring it under control because capitalism and neoliberalism are kind of, not just seducing us into thinking about our life as these units of productivity, but kind of frog marching us into this productive mindset. 
Yeah, I, yeah. Please respond. I can see Kate nodding, and I can, Bridget. I know that you, you know, you've got something to say. So please. One thing I was thinking about, Mary, is that as I was listening to Bridget, two notifications came in from my email, and I noticed that they chimed. And I was thinking about how many of the devices that we use are trying to make a claim on our listening, trying to divide our attention from the thing that we're trying to think about. In fact, we live in a very noisy world, and that noise is often generated by devices that have something to do with time. So not only alarms, but particularly notifications. And I've become aware that whenever I'm in a meeting with people, we're surrounded by faint buzzing noises as all of the other demands on our attention make a claim on our listening. And I think one thing I've loved about being in spaces for listening with Bridget is, and I should say Bridget and Charlie, who is always there. One thing I've really loved is that people seem to be very attentive only to the sound of the voice that they're listening to. And that's such a rare experience. That is a rare experience. Yeah. And people comment on that, actually. They they will say, because, of course, well, I say, of course, Spaces for Listening happens over Zoom. So what, what a lot of people do is compare how Spaces for Listening feels to many other Zoom or Teams meetings that they're involved in. And, and a lot of people very honestly and openly say, this is the only meeting I can think of where I haven't looked at my phone. I haven't, I've switched off my, or I'm ignoring my email notifications that are popping up. And so we could say, well, so why is that? And I think it's something, but what happens in the space between us is that there are relational connect- connections between us, even though we are eight people who have just met in, in most cases. And we've explored that quite a lot about, so what is it that creates enough of a relational connection between us in that short space of time that, that people feel some kind of investment in each other? And I think some of it is the structure. So there is a really light structure, which is that, you know, that Charlie or I facilitate, but we take part as well. And what that means is everybody knows they're going to get three times two minutes of time uninterrupted to speak. So that's one thing. But they also know what order they're going to speak. And so for some people at first, that structure can feel a little alien. It's like, what, you're going to tell us when we can speak and for how long? But once you accept that, what that does is that structure holds the space. And then we can on with listening to each other. So, so we've explored quite a lot about how we create enough trust and we have just enough trust or just enough space, just enough relationship between us. And I think there's, there is something to explore how that, how that can be extended. I, I want to explore that a little bit more because one of the things I think that happens in meetings is that while someone else is speaking, other people are thinking about the best response that they could possibly give. That's, if you're lucky, the other thing that's happening is they're thinking about something entirely different. So maybe is it about people, I love a structure. So is it like knowing that I can deeply listen to you because there's no other call on my time while you're speaking except that I will listen to you and I can do that because I also know that you're going to listen to me because that's one of the rules. Do you think that that that's it? Yes, and um, I think it is 
a lot of people have said to us, there is something really liberating about listening with no agenda and just listening, but just me, just listening, meaning that a lot. And a lot of people have said they realize how little they are genuinely listening elsewhere in their teams or in their families, not because they came back to something Kate said, not because they're bad people or they don't no. want to. There's so many, there's such an expectation to respond, have the answer. And in spaces of listening, it's like this little moment of, of shared space where we, where we say, right, actually, we're not going to solve each other's or even our own issues. We're just going to listen. But actually, what, what we all find is that in itself is a huge part of the answer because we're, you know, we listen to ourselves as well as listen to each other. And what emerges very naturally is some very big connecting themes. So you mentioned about the exhaustion that people are experiencing. So, you know, you won't be surprised to hear a lot of people who've come through spaces for listening in the last three years or so. There are lots of common themes like exhaustion around loss, around grief, around disconnection. And so those those themes are allowed to just emerge and then people make the connections. So it changes perhaps how we how we listen to and respond to each other. And how does that flow into what happens when we're not in the spaces for listening? Because I think in a way, Kate, is that what you're trying to do at Illawarra Shoalhaven to see how we can create something that isn't necessarily happening in that meeting? Or maybe tell us a bit. Yes, this is the very big challenge that we've set ourselves in a small team with a very small project to look at how people with experience of being ill and people with experience of working in health can listen to each other better to understand what their shared experience of healthcare might be. We can see that in the clinical encounter itself, there are multiple barriers to good listening. Both parties have an agenda. And so that openness that spaces for listening represents a space with no agenda. That's not the context. So one party has something to get across and the other party has something to try and understand. And so the space is very noisy in a clinical encounter. And often people will come away and say, he wasn't listening or she didn't really hear me. And so we do want to try and see if we can take some of the principles and the experiences that Spaces for Listening offer and move them very, very gently and carefully into other kinds of encounters between people who might need to get something said, but really need to learn how to listen to each other first. And I think in that context, Mary, listening is really an act of putting things aside, putting aside your agenda for the conversation and being open to the possibility that the other person has something you will not expect. That's one of the very big things we're looking for. That's beautiful. It's like a curiosity, isn't it? It is, yes. Like we become deeply curious because we don't anticipate that we can know the richness of the story that is about to unfold Mm -hmm. for us. And then we really start to listen. But the other beautiful thing that I'm hearing is that we don't have to respond. So people aren't responding to the stories in a spaces for listening session, are they? They they don't jump in and interrupt. Yeah. So if I'm for two minutes, have it. But once I've spoken, what happens in subsequent people's turns? People build on on what each other has said, but it's it's kind of building on rather than 
commenting on or judging from an external point of view. It's like it's just taking those threads and and they kind of flow. It's it's difficult to describe. It's it's one of those things that's best to experience, but but it but it's wonderful when that happens. So if I might just share a yeah, a, please. So I will not every time, but sometimes we'll share aspects of, of my experience of grief and what's what's so helpful is that i can just say that out out loud and know that people are really listening but they're not going to jump in and and pity me or rescue me they might take something i've said and, and build on it further and actually that my experience of that as someone who's been grieving is so affirming because I really feel heard. So, yeah. It just, it strikes me listening to you how so often we don't have that feeling of being heard. So often there are words that are passing between people, but there isn't a sense of that you really heard what it was that I said. And someone on on the Compassion Revolution team, Amy, has a little phrase, and I might get it wrong, but it's something like, when we talked about building our values, it, one of them was that we give people, we let people have all their words. And this idea that people can have all their words, I think kind of, in a way, it's like I'm thinking of it right now as I'm sitting here. I hadn't thought of it before, but in a way, that's kind of what you're saying, isn't it? Letting people have all their words, no matter how many words there are. Yes. And some of those words might be unspoken. So there's, So there might be silence and some of those words might come out as laughter or crying and everything in between. And so I love that phrase. It means a lot. I love it I think too. it connects to the principle also of letting people have their own words. So often in a, a clinical encounter, there's an assumption about what the other person said and uh, a, a misrecollection because you didn't listen to their actual words. You listened to what you yeah. thought they were saying. And when you discipline yourself only to listen to the words that the person used and not to assume that you know what those words mean to them, but only to listen, just to hear and accept their own words, something quite different happens to your listening. And I think it's a much more humble form of listening because you're not listening to paraphrase. And I think that's very important. That's interesting. That's something that you do really well, Kate. And we get feedback about your capacity to hold space and listen every year when you are part of the conference. But I I wonder, I'd love to hear more about that type of listening because clinicians are kind of trained, aren't they, to listen and so that they can reduce that to note form. While you're talking, I want to be able to put that in one clear sentence that the next person can understand rather than in the words that you have used. I don't know. What is the, yeah, I'm not, I, I, tell me, how do you help people learn to do this? Is it by experiencing it? One reflection I have on what you've said is that, so a lot of people who are in clinical roles, their training, their education, the structures they work in requires them to go through almost like a, a checklist, if not actually mentally, a checklist of things to to try and understand what's happening to the person sitting in front of them, and and to reach some kind of diagnosis. And of course, we you know we need we need them to be doing that. And the the most skilled and compassionate clinicians that I know 
do that and really, really listen, as Kate was saying, to the words that somebody is actually using because they recognize that someone who's experiencing some kind of health condition knows their body better than and what's happening to them better than anybody else. They might not be able to use the right or, you know, in inverted commas or clinical terms to describe that, but actually the, the, a lot of the answers to what's going on to, to them or with them will, will, will emerge in how they describe it if the clinician is able to hold that space a bit differently and really listen. And sometimes also as patients, and we've all been, even our listeners, you sitting here in front of me, me, you know, we've all been a patient. And if you haven't, the bad news is, and the good news is that you will be. But sometimes we even carry a story that is really a story about what we fear might be wrong with us. And so it's not, you know, we bring an intelligence and an intuition about what is happening to our bodies, and that is really valuable. And then on top of that, often we bring an anxiety and a fear, and we don't easily get a chance to name that you know, to name it and to have someone hear it and validate it, take it quite seriously and then be able to help us to see perhaps that's not it. I think it might be something else. So that kind of like working together, a clinician and a patient or a clinician and a person who's presenting in that relationship with an illness to be able to work together to establish something. Because clinicians also make wrong guesses just like we do about our bodies. I think the thing that's interesting there, Mary, about reaching for the unsaid, and Bridget mentioned the, the words that don't get spoken, is that it seems to make sense to reach for that unsaid by asking questions which will flush it out. But I've found that a better way to reach for the unsaid is to reinforce the said. So to take the words that a person does feel that they can use and the thing that they do feel they can name, and to hand it back. So hand back those words and say, can you say more about that mm -hmm. thing you said? And the way that that seems to me quite like spaces for listening is that you're giving the person another turn, another mm -hmm. turn, and you're reinforcing, I heard you say this, can you perhaps elaborate on that? Under those circumstances, the thing that is hardest to speak about, the thing that's hardest to name, may develop a sufficient sense of safety and confidence that it will emerge. And I think that's the real strength of letting people have their own words, is that eventually their own hidden words will also sort of quietly appear. That is really beautiful. I'm just, you know, almost wondering what, what words might even emerge in this moment for people. It's, yeah, someone earlier, I don't remember if it was Kate or Bridget, one of you used this word humble. It's kind of a humble way of practicing. Yeah, it was Kate. It, there is a humility to it, isn't there, Kate? I was reading something earlier, Mary, by someone that you and I both like, whose name, of course, I've instantly banked, David White. Oh, um, yes. Who talks about the etymology of, of humility in the context of humiliation and says it, that the, the word for earth is in there, humus. And humility returns you to the ground the dirt of your own experience. And actually that's why it's a good experience, even though mm -hmm. if it's come through humiliation, you may not feel that way in the moment. 
But when you meet the ground of your own experience, that's the space from which you can start to regrow. And I think that's why a humble approach is also quite a grounded approach. And it, it's settling in the space that you have made for yourself in the world. And that can be, I think, quite reassuring to, to return to that home ground. That sounds like something David White would definitely say. <laughs> Beautiful uh, poet. I want to shift our conversation a little bit now because you're both going to join us at Making Work Beautiful in October. And you're very near the end of the conference on the second day, just before the closing ceremony. And I notice in the notes that you've sent me about your session, you've started to use this word unfolding. So I wonder, and I think it's your turn, Bridget. So I'm going to ask you to tell us a little bit about the idea of unfolding um, this work and how it unfolds. And then I'm really keen to hear about maybe what it is that people are going to encounter in that session so that they can have a, a, a sense of why they definitely should not book an early flight home. So um, tell us about unfolding, Bridget. It's something Kate spotted. I, I use that word a lot, I think, in, in things I write. And I think it connects to this space in which I can can continue carry on listening to each other and letting um, what needs to unfold in us but between us. And that's that's the conversation Kate and I had a, a few days ago about our session. Really, was that unfolding, which is we were trying to imagine by that stage in the conference what people would have what we would all have experienced a, a lot of interactions, a lot of stuff. And that actually sometimes we need a bit of space to let that settle, to let what we've heard, what we've experienced, what we felt settle a little bit and let something unfold. And so I think that's where that came from, Kate. You, you, no, that you, is what happened. Um, in fact, it's the practice that we've been talking about in this conversation. Uh, Bridget and I were staring at a blank page and you, Mary, had asked us to come up with something. And we looked at our blank page for a bit and Bridget said about something else, it unfolds. And I was so interested in that word. It's not a word I, I use very often, but I noticed it was dear to Bridget. So I wrote down it unfolds in quotes, which is my listening practice. And when we came back to the blank page, words somewhat miraculously appeared. And then Bridget emailed me and she said, are we calling it? it unfolds because I really like unfolding. And I said, no, I think actually I was just listening to you and you said it unfolds. And I just bookmarked that thought because I wanted to know what it meant to you. So I think it probably is a, a bit of a blessing on the session, this term. And what we're hoping for is that people will experience an unfolding of time before they return to their working lives and their teams where time may once more be folded up a bit too tightly for them. So for me, the image of It Unfolds set off a, a whole lot of thoughts about unfolding linen. I like folding linen, but I also really like unfolding it. And I don't know that that's what it meant to Bridget, but it, it gave me a sense of spaciousness that an unfolded sheet takes up a different kind of room in the world than a folded sheet. And we wanted time to be able to be experienced as an unfolded linen. Oh, that is gorgeous. 
What I thought of when I read the unfolding was there's a line in a poem, and I, for the life of me, I can't think what it is, but there's a line that says you can't fold a river. And this idea that you can't fold a river, so some things can't be folded, right? Your linen can, but some things can't be folded. And the other thing I love about that you are going to unfold with the audience is we often think that the end of the conference is the time for packing up, folding everything up, right? And now it's over and now we're folding and, oh, what the t- what's the time? And, oh, I've, I've booked the early flight, you know, because and, and nothing kind of happens at the end. And in our conference, a lot always happens at the end. So we always have a, some sort of closing ceremony and we never know what it's going to be until like a week before the conference and it suddenly starts to come together and it's something really beautiful. And so the idea that before we do that, we can let some things unfold rather than pack up our pencil case and put it in our bags. Mm. And also I really love that people are going to get this opportunity before they leave to be thinking about what it is they've learned. And I owe a debt of gratitude to both of you because when we had a Zoom call, you graciously reminded me that people don't actually need like another thing at the end. I'm always like, what else can I give you? What else can I give you? Steak knives. You know? And you both reminded me, <laughs> people don't necessarily need more. They might just need to, in this case, unfold. So I'm very, very grateful. And it's been beautiful. I'm speaking with you, I'm Bridget, and I wish you a very safe flight out here to Australia. Can't wait to see you. Can't and, wait to be with you. Yeah, it's going to be awesome. And Kate, I always love to have you with us at Compassion Revolution, and you are going to help us make work beautiful, aren't you? Thank you for having us, Mary. Uh, we're going to be coming to you uh, on a road trip. So this is Bridget's first time in Australia, so we're going to drive from Wollongong to Melbourne. So uh, it's, it's more than the usual adventure for us. This is so good. You can tell us about your road trip. This is great. I love it. All right. Well, thank you so much, Kate. Thank you, Bridget. We'll see you in October at Making Work Beautiful. Let's go.